If you would please turn with me to Luke chapter 22. We're in Luke chapter 22, and what I want to do this week is um, I want to look at um, Jesus having the Passover with his disciples. Um, and and I, I want to take this story of him having the Passover and from kind of the end of Passion Week. We're, we're in what is sometimes called Passion Week. It's the week where Jesus has come to Jerusalem to be hailed as king, but then at the end of the week to be crucified and um, really executed as king as the charge against him that was put on the cross was that he was being executed for being the king of the Jews. And uh, there's this week where a lot of stuff happens. And instead of kind of looking just at the Palm Sunday part, I want to go right to the end and look at the Passover and kind of look at the Passion Week from the Passover end of things. And so we'll read um, verse 7 and then verses 14 through 20 together. And we'll go from there. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, starting in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And coming down to verse 14. And when the hour came, he, Jesus, reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly, which means seriously, which means uh, from the depth of my being, I have earnestly desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after he had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Father, I just thank you so much for this morning. and I thank you for this uh, calendar event that we have in Easter where um, we know that you died at a certain time of the year and so that we have throughout history been able to just place that date on, on our calendar and remember these events. And Father, I just pray that you would come and, and by your Holy Spirit you touch each person's heart and mind in the way that we need and that you would encourage us, strengthen us, and draw us closer to you. And I pray, Father, that you'd give me everything I need to be your faithful servant this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this morning, I just want to take this, this, this sentence that Jesus said and kind of use it as my anchor as I explore some stuff where Jesus says to his disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This is, this is my key part of this passage. Jesus at the table, and um, as far as I understand it, they didn't sit at a table in Jesus' time. They would have had a, a bit of a raised table, and they would be lying on cushions on their their left-hand side, kind of eating from the center together. That's why they say he reclined at table. He wasn't just slouching like some of us might do at dinner after we've had to loosen our belts a little bit because we've eaten too much spaghetti. They're, they're lying down on their side, and you can arrange themselves around the table like that. That's how they're doing it. And he's saying to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And I just want to um, uh, try to unpack 
Why did Jesus say this? I, I have had a passion. I have had a, a soul craving to share this meal with you before I suffer. And I have kind of three ideas or three things I want to draw out of him, out of it, him saying this. And the first thing I think is going on here is that this Passover meal for Jesus was kind of the sign that he was on the final lap of his race. Right? Like there, there are some parts in a journey when you're on a journey where you know you're almost home, you're almost finished, right? It's like uh, a few years ago we drove out to BC to spend time with my mom and my family. And um, when you're driving to BC along the prairies, I'll just let that sink in. You can wonder if you're going anywhere sometime. You're actually glad when you pass by roadkill because it lets you get a sense of the state you're actually moving. It's like, oh, there goes a dead deer. We are still moving. That's great because I can't tell. I, the speedometer says 150, but it looks like I'm going nowhere. You know, so there's, there's kind of just this sense. And then you hit the Alberta border, the Saskatchewan-Alberta border, and that's when all of your children decide to tell you that they all have to go to the bathroom. And you think that should be fine because when you're crossing a border, there should be a gas station somewhere. And then you find out that the next three gas stations have all closed down. And so, you know, you get this sense of, ah, ah, well, what, what, what's going on? And so all I'm trying to say is that you know this when you're, when you're running a race or you're traveling on a journey, there, there's often this point where you know, I'm in the final stretches, I'm almost home. And the best part about going west from here is when you hit the Rocky Mountains. And you know that you've only got about five or six hours until you've hit the Okanagan, and they are going to be really great hours because you're not in the prairies anymore. Go prairies. <laughs> and, I, and I think this is part of it, is that Jesus has had a humongous race of a life. Um, born into having a, a crazy, tyrannical king trying to kill him, spending his early years in another country to avoid that, and then many, many, many quiet years. Okay, so from his young adulthood, when he's about 12 years old and stays behind at the temple until he's 30 years old, nothing. We don't know anything about his life. And so those are quiet years. And let me just tell you, he was still the word of God all those years, just because of the will of the Father doing nothing. Those were his prairie years. But then he, he's got his years of ministry, the miracle workings, the walking on water, the gathering his disciples. And then he's in his Passion Week. And... The Passion Week was a very intense week, and a lot of it had to do with the Passover, because um, you'll remember the story of the Passover from the book of Exodus. Maybe you won't. People have made movies of these things, starring Charlton Heston, and they threw in this really weird side love story. I just like, Hollywood, come on, can't anybody rescue a nation of people without being strangely attracted to one of the Egyptian ladies? Like, does that have to happen? Um... Maybe just if it's Charlton Heston. But you'll remember the story of, of Moses who was, like Jesus, born into a situation where he should have died. And he was this rescued child during um, a political government policy that all the Jewish boys had to be thrown into a river or killed to keep their numbers down so they didn't rise up against Egypt. And uh, But he survived it by being adopted into pharaoh's household and as he grew up he tried to rescue israel one time and ended up killing uh, 
an Egyptian and ended up fleeing and living out in the wilderness for, for decades, really, until God showed up and said, it, it's time for you to return to my people to lead them in a rescue. Uh, sound like Jesus at all? And so it's no accident that all this is happening in the lead up to Passover. And Jesus comes to Jerusalem as, as, a, as a kind of a Moses and a fulfillment. He's the true Moses who has returned in order to deliver his people. And um, what's going on there is that we're, we're kind of meant to see the same way that Moses showed up with his staff to work miracles to set his people free. Jesus has also showed up, shown up to have a really big conflict and for it to culminate with setting his people free through a Passover. But the, the conflict is really different. Okay, if you remember the Exodus stories, what did Moses tend to do in the, in the conflicts? This is the interactive portion. Remember, some of you are going to ask me to help you someday, and I'm going to remember whether or not you shouted out answers during the sermon. Some of you are going to be looking for a referral for like adopting people, and it'll be like, well, you were pretty quiet when I was asking about the Moses things. What did Moses do leading up to the Passover? in the book of Exodus. You guys are buying yourself a sermon series on Exodus after Easter. Come on, John, shout it out. What, what did he do? Thank you, miracles. That was exactly what I was looking for. We had like the 10 plagues, right? Well, nine plagues and then the Passover. So Moses would go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Pharaoh would say no, and then the Nile would turn to blood. Moses would go to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh would say no. Then the land covered in gnats. And it would just, there was these increasing conflicts going on there. And we don't see that kind of Hollywood-esque miracles happening with Jesus coming to Jerusalem. Instead, we see um, a war of words, primarily. So Jesus shows up to Jerusalem, and everyone's waving the palm branches, and they're saying Hosanna, and they're declaring him king. And the, the leaders say, shut your disciples up. And I'm not sure exactly why. Either they're wrong or they're embarrassing themselves or whatever, or we're jealous. And Jesus says, well, if they don't do it, the rocks will cry out. And from that moment on, there was nonstop arguing conflict with the city of Jerusalem. And we're supposed to see a parallel between Moses showing up in Egypt to combat the forces there in order to set his people free, and Jesus showing up in Jerusalem in order to combat the people who are in charge there. And the key issue in both conflicts is who's God and who's in charge. That's the key issue in both conflicts. And so in Egypt, Pharaoh styled himself as a God. And Moses shows up to say, no, actually Yahweh is God. And he'll perform all these mighty miracles to show that he is the only powerful one. He's got power over the rivers, he's got power over the bugs, he's got power over disease, he's got power over the weather, he's got power over everything. When Jesus comes, we have these, this series of conflicts, and they're all to do with who Jesus is, and is he the king, and is he the one who has authority to come and rule? So, him riding into Jerusalem, he's the king. The people say, no, he's not, you need to shut up your disciples. Jesus comes into the temple, cleanses the thing, drives out all the, uh, the money changers it, because this is his house and his father's house. It would kind of be like if you did a, 
an Airbnb thing and you went away for a few weeks and you came back and somebody had set up a casino in your basement, you would just be like, get out of here, you bozos. And uh, that's what Jesus did to the temple. He came in and there's all these money changers who are turning it into a racket. And he kicks them out and they come back and say, what authority do you have to do these things? And he says to them, well, I'll answer that question. You tell me when John the Baptist was preaching, what was his message from heaven or just from men? And that is the answer to the question. I'm here sent from heaven, not just from men. But they knew they couldn't answer the question because they'd rejected John the Baptist. And, uh, and so these fights go on. Shall we, give, shall we pay taxes to Caesar? That's a question about authority. Does Caesar have authority to tax us? And we're questioning your authority. We want to trap you. And if you say, no, don't pay, ten, don't pay taxes to Caesar, we're going to turn on you and get Caesar to attack you. And, and that's going on. And then, um, and then they have this question. The Sadducees come and have a question about the resurrection. And they kind of have this absurd situation where, because they didn't believe in the resurrection, they rejected everything but the first five books of the Bible. And, uh, and so they have this fight about the resurrection. And initially, that doesn't look like it has to do with authority, except what does God do to prove that Jesus is the Son of God after his death? He raises him from the dead. Gold star John, you can have whatever you want from me after the service. Thank you. So this is about authority. If there is no resurrection, then there is no God proving that, his, that Jesus is the Son of God by raising him from the dead. And then once Jesus has kind of had all his conflicts with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and everybody who wants to conflict with him, he asks them a question and says, how does David say that his Lord is David's son? Or one of his own children will be his Lord, which is a question of authority. Who's in charge here? So in the same way that the lead up in the Old Testament in Exodus, I know I'm getting biblical on you, but I want us to see what God wants us to see here. The same way that the Exodus story leading up to the Passover, the question was, who is God and who's in charge? Jesus's Passion Week leading up to the Passover meal was all about who's in charge here and who is God. And that, but the difference is it's not Moses with a stick saying, Yahweh is Lord. It's Jesus with his mouth saying, I'm the Messiah. And that brings us, and that's his, been his hard work leading up to the Passover. And the Passover is the end of his verbal jousting, the end of his arguments, that he's done the work there. He has won. And now he's having this time with his disciples to have a meal. The second thing that I think comes out of this, remember, I'm trying to talk about why is Jesus saying, I have, I've had this soul hunger to be with you at this Passover meal. The first thing I'm saying is it's, it's a sign that Jesus has completed most of his race, his miracles, his disciple gathering, and his conflict in Jerusalem. He's coming onto the home stretch. The second thing that, that comes out is he says, I have desired to have this Passover with you. And these are no throwaway words. And I just, I just almost just wanted us to picture it, like Jesus sitting with his 12 disciples, and one of them is Judas, and Judas is about to leave. So at least 11 of them he's on good terms with. And he's sitting with them, and he's saying, I have so wanted to have this meal with you. Because Jesus came for people. 
Um, salvation isn't a catch and release gig. Fishing season's coming up. Woot woot. Daver's retiring soon, so I'm going to have to take over the mantle of turning every sermon into a fishing story. Um, that's been Dave's gig so far, but now he's training me in the ways of the water. And uh, it was this big. And when you're out fishing, the last time Dave and I went fishing, it was for catfish, which is the ugliest fish in the world. Like, it's just the ugliest thing in the world. It's so ugly. If you ever have something you think, that's not pretty, then just get a catfish and put it beside it, and you'll think, that's not so bad, actually. If I ever end up needing to look attractive, I'll put my picture beside a catfish, and you'll be like, you know what? I'm having second thoughts about this, Pastor Rob. It's not so bad on Sunday mornings when he's up there. I'm not going to have to close my eyes and just listen as much as I've been doing so far. But it's not a catch and release thing. When you catch a catfish, you're like, and you put it back. You're like, this is big, but you put it back. That's not what Jesus has been doing with salvation. It's not kind of like, wow, I saved these people. Okay, see you later, guys. Swim away, little fishies. Enjoy your life. It's, he, he gets us to keep us. And so he, 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 this, is, this is the reason he came, is, is actually to have an everlasting meal with us. That's why heaven and the new heavens and the new earth are so often talked about as this great supper, this humongous meal with a table a thousand miles long where, where everybody's got a great seat at it and the food just will not stop coming. And I'm sure there'll be wine. Sorry, Steinbeck. I'm sure there'll be wine. But we won't be able to do anything bad with it. And because uh, eating isn't just about food. Okay, so last week I was talking about making roast chickens and how much I enjoy that. Does anybody remember that? Well, I've, I've totally blown it because we were supposed to have a roast chicken yesterday, but I forgot to bring it out of the freezer. And so my wife and my mom very... Graciously, we had driven off to, to uh, Winnipeg and very graciously said, you know, I think we decided we were going to have spaghetti tonight. And I, then I was like, oh, yeah, because I was supposed to start brining the chicken this morning. And instead, I, nep- I slept on the couch, and, uh, which is the worst excuse to forget to brine a chicken ever. So, um, but, you know, if we wanted to, instead of making spaghetti, we could have probably just bought nutrition bags. You know, some scientists could make a bag of slop that is super healthy for you, right? I'm sure the, the guys in outer space get given this every once in a while. Just nutrition bags. And three times a day, you can just reach into your fridge and grab a nutrition bag and just and swallow and get all your nutrients that you need. Now, imagine we all did this. We just went into the nutrition bag lifestyle. You know, I, if I keep this recording in case somebody takes my idea. I'm going to sue them. And uh, so we moved to nutrition bags. What have we... Does this make life better? No. Because one of the most important parts of life is sitting down with people around a table and looking each other in the face and eating together. Okay? And what, what, what we need to learn here is that this was God's idea needing to eat three times a day about and sitting down with people and looking people in the face and 
and having it take time and then ending up telling stories and laughing together and and finding out how each other are doing and spending time enjoying satisfying our needs in an enjoyable way this is god's idea and it's a picture of forever this is jesus's desire this is why he came to suffer was so that he could gather together a people and have meals with them forever because he loves people he loves us he and he wants to be with us and so just to hear jesus's words i have eagerly desired to eat this meal with you because he wants to be with us and the crazy thing is is that most people the last thing that they come to believe as christians is that god really 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 wants to be with me we know that we need to get saved we know we need to get rescued from stuff and we're really glad that jesus does that we know we have problems and we want them to go away and we know that jesus can help with that we know we feel lonely and maybe he can help with that but the last thing in my experience most people come to really come to grips with is the fact that god wants to be with us more than we want to be with him so just hear that those words i have eagerly desired to have this meal with you that's profound that's awesome very good right on schedule the last thing he says in this sentence i have eagerly desired to eat this passover meal with you before i suffer is the before i suffer part in the exodus story uh, god has done his nine plagues and really has reduced egypt to nothing um, it's a fast, it's a crazy story because egypt was kind of just nothing until the joseph days you remember the joseph days when joseph comes and rescues that part of the world from famine by teaching egypt to save the food and then egypt became a world superpower by being the only place that had food during a long famine and they became the most powerful country in the world through that and now it's been all taken away because of their harsh treatment of the people that rescued them and they and moses did the nine plagues and then but they were pharaoh was still hard-hearted and then the 10th plague came which was the the passover and the promise was that an avenging angel was going to come down and every family was going to lose their firstborn child i think it was it may have been firstborn son forgive me i've forgotten a detail here that was the promise an avenging angel is coming and the strange thing about this plague was that usually god was just afflicting the egyptians and there was kind of this sense like the israelites were the victims and the egyptians were the bad guys and god was just wailing on the bad guys but here with this last and final and most important plague there's a total level playing field everybody is going to be impacted by this avenging angel coming unless you take a male lamb sacrifice him take his blood put it on the doorpost of your house and then eat this lamb as part of the passover meal that was the promise and every family that did that they were passed over the avenging angel didn't impact them didn't catch them didn't take their firstborn child and so it's this is a unique plague because everybody egyptian and israelite alike is in danger of the effects of it and everybody who believes the promise of how to escape the plague could do it 
And the Bible doesn't record if any of the Egyptians did it. But it wasn't about their heritage. It wasn't about their genetics. It wasn't about their people group. It was just about the blood. And what Jesus is doing is he's saying that story, which we have remembered as Jews for years and years and years and years and years, that was a picture. And the real deal is about to happen when I suffer. When I suffer. This meal that we're eating is a picture of what is about to happen. And Jesus was going to go to the cross and as a pure and spotless male lamb, he was going to sacrifice himself or willingly be sacrificed according to the will of the Father so that everybody who puts their faith in him has his blood applied to them personally so that the avenging angel or the wrath of God will pass over them. No matter who you are, if you apply the blood, you're saved. No matter what you've done, if you're Egyptian or Israelite, no matter your background, Mennonite, Scottish, or whatever you might be, if you have the blood applied to you, you're saved. And this was Jesus' mission. And Jesus had the most unique mission ever because his mission was to die. Okay, this is, this is not normal for people to just say, I need to die so that the world changes. Sometimes people will die trying to change the world. Like an Abraham Lincoln or somebody who was kind of leading the civil war to end slavery in the United States, who's assassinated as president. He was on a mission, and along the way, somebody killed him. Same thing happened with Gandhi in his quest to make get rid of the British out of India and make this like truly Hindu nation assassinated along the way for one reason or another. That's not what Jesus was doing. He wasn't just assassinated along the way while he was doing something else. Um, there's people who wear themselves out on mission, like a William Wilberforce who spent his adult life fighting to make slavery illegal in the British Empire, and him and his team did more than anybody else in the history of the world to end slavery, because as they made slavery illegal in Britain, the British Empire used its worldwide influence to rid their empire of slavery. Just so we know, when we hear about people arguing about slavery, the British Empire did more than anybody else to rid the world of slavery because they ruled most of the world and they made it illegal and then they went into places like China and India and they fought battles on the west coast of Africa. And the world's a mess, but just so we have our facts straight. And he wore himself out and died like three days after the bill was passed that made slavery illegal in in Britain. That's not what happened to Jesus. And it's not like that bizarre and strange and almost worthless story from Star Wars. Okay, I'm going to indulge myself in one more bashing Star Wars story from the front where Obi-Wan Kenobi is facing down Darth Vader and says, if you strike me down, I will become more powerful than you could ever imagine. Which was the worst overboast in all of cinematic history. Because Darth Vader could have just responded to him, yeah, you're going to become a hologram. And Obi-Wan would say, no, 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 it's completely different. I'm going to become this bluey, see-through guy who can appear places. To which Darth Vader could respond, yeah, a hologram. I I was just doing that before I met with you. I was talking with an admiral on another spaceship. I was like this tall, and I was bluey and see-through, and I was talking with him in other places. You're going to become a hologram. And he's like, no, 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 I'm going to be more powerful than you ever imagined. I don't think so, because holograms aren't that powerful. 
No, no, just, would you just strike me down? The worst overboast ever. I just, ah, just, that's not what happened. Jesus didn't actually need to die to become more powerful than we could ever imagine. He was more powerful than we could ever imagine before he became incarnate. He was already making a universe and ruling over it. He came to die. He came to be put on a cross with the conviction that by dying and shedding blood, he changed forever how we could relate to God. He took away sin through faith, which, what, what is sin? Sin at its hardest is just a rejection of God. I, I don't want God in my life. I, I want to be on my own. I want to do my own thing. That's at its heart. And God's response to sin is, is, is severe because how do you reject the creator of everything and not lose everything? But guys, God came in his son to remove every barrier for us coming back to him. And it was in the blood. It was in the blood. His mission was to die. It wasn't something that happened along the way. He didn't just die to be an example, though he was. He didn't just die to, to stir up people's desire to be better people, though that does happen. He had to die. He wanted to die. He was sitting at the Passover meal saying, I want to sit with you before I go to fulfill the Passover, before I go to provide a blood that if you receive it by faith, will rescue you, will make you beloved children of God, will, will purchase for you an eternal hope. So I'm ending, I'm starting off our Passion Week by talking about the end of Passion Week because I just want us to be thinking about this through the week. We have a good Friday service at 10 o'clock on Friday. You're welcome to come to it. We have our Resurrection Sunday service on Sunday. And I don't want us to just show up and be like, oh yeah, that stuff. The week leading up to the death and resurrection of Jesus was, was all about the Passover and fulfilling the meaning of the Passover. A a person dying, willingly, to change the universe, so that anybody, anywhere, who wants to, can have God as their Father, and eat with Him forever. Father, I thank You so much for Your Word. I thank You so much for... um, this reliable word. I thank you so much for your great love. I thank you so much for wanting us so much. God, there are times when I I sit at a table and I'm so zoned out on thinking about other things that I don't even do relationship. And to know that Jesus loves sitting down with people because he, he likes them and he loves them and he wants to be with them. God, this is just, it pierces my heart. Father, I pray that you would just bless us. Help us know God. In Jesus' name.